Well, we covered uh, basically most of John chapter 7 over the last two weeks, uh, but we sort of passed over these few verses relatively quickly, other than focusing on Jesus' invitation to the people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, because this is the predominant theme of John chapter 7. There's the unbelief of the people and their excuses, their poor excuses for their unbelief. And Jesus, it seems troubled, likely compassionate, somewhat vexed, cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is the predominant theme of the passage, but then verses 38 and 39 are almost like uh, mentioned in a passing way as the main train of thought rolls along through John chapter 7, but there's actually quite a bit of substance to these two verses, so we're going back to look at 38 and 39 in greater detail this morning, going back and zooming in. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And remember, that's all that his hearers heard, because this explanatory note in verse 39 wasn't attached, obviously, to Jesus' discourse in the temple. But for us, John adds this explanatory note. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, uh, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we're going to, we understand here then that Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell His people. And we're going to see three things about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The first is that, The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a blessing of the New Covenant. The vast majority of the Reformed tradition would disagree with me here, but I believe that the indwelling Holy Spirit in each and every saved person is a distinct blessing of the New Covenant. In other words, as opposed to the Old Testament times in which people were saved, and they were saved the same way that we are saved by grace through faith. But, I do not believe that each and every one of those Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those who took hold of the promises of Christ throughout the Old Testament period were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, no doubt. And they were justified by God's grace through faith, just as we are in the New Covenant. But nevertheless, just as sins weren't actually paid for until Jesus died. And yet there was a promissory phase of atonement and a fulfillment phase of atonement, even though it's the same atonement. So I believe there was a promissory phase of the coming of the Holy Spirit and a fulfillment phase of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we see instances in the Old Testament of persons being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. David, for example, who says in Psalm 51 and verse 11, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
necessarily implying that he has received God's Holy Spirit. Or Joseph, in whom Pharaoh recognizes is the Spirit of God in Genesis 41 and verse 38. And yet there are clear prophecies in the Old Testament of God's Spirit to come at a then future time. Isaiah 44 and verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Ezekiel 36, 27, which we read it in, a, in its larger context earlier in the service. I will put my spirit within you. Joel 2, 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. These are promises of a then future experience. To them, it was a future experience in which God would put his spirit within each and every one of God's people. All of them, the sons, the daughters, the old men, the young men, the male servants and the female servants, as the prophet Joel goes on to say. This is in contrast with what Isaiah 63 tells us. That in the days of old, of Moses and his people, God put in the midst of them, his Holy Spirit. And this God in the midst of his people, was the normative Old Testament experience. Obviously the Holy Spirit was in existence. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead are eternal persons. And obviously the Holy Spirit was active. We clearly see the Holy Spirit active throughout the Old Testament in many ways and in many places. And of course, everybody who came to faith in the coming Messiah had to have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Because unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? But regeneration is a change wrought in you. By someone else. Which is distinguishable from someone else coming to dwell within you. And so, like a surgeon could give you a literal heart transplant without taking up residence within you. So, it is possible, theoretically, for the Holy Spirit to perform an operation upon you. Changing your heart without coming to take up residence within you. The confusion comes, I believe, and this is where um, the, re- the Reformed tradition majority stakes its case. The confusion comes because in the New Testament, we don't have people who are born again who are not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we don't have people who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit but not born again. Romans 8 tells us that if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Him. And so I think what happens is people reason backwards from the fact that they always happen to the same person at the same time in the New Covenant, and they go, therefore, it must have been the same all along. But if we recognize that they are distinguishable things, regeneration is distinguishable from indwelling, it is possible, at least theoretically, that regeneration could happen without indwelling in the Old Testament. And this is, in fact... This is what I believe, in fact, did happen. Which is what makes 
Pentecost so wonderful that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell each and every one of God's people. And so God's Spirit is not only in the midst of God's people, like as in He's in the temple which is in the middle of the camp, or the the tabernacle which is in the middle of the camp, or He's among the people by virtue of His anointing of the kings and the prophets, or so on and so forth. But God is not just merely in the midst of God's people anymore, but He is within each and every one of God's people in the post-Pentecost era. And here in John chapter 7 and verse 39, it says explicitly that those who believed in Jesus were to receive the Holy Spirit. And it says, again, explicitly, that the Spirit, as yet the Spirit had not been given. Which seems to confirm to me the understanding that I just outlined for you. If this is correct, if this is correct, then what a privilege we have as believers living after Pentecost over against believers prior to Pentecost who were saved, they belonged to God, their sins were forgiven, and yet they were not given the Holy Spirit to indwell them. What aid, what help we have in this post-Pentecost era, which was not given them. What a heightened privilege then. This is not an airtight argument, but to further just press this point. If you think about it, would we let Abraham or David be a pastor in our church? Probably not. In terms of the the sexual sin that we see, plots to murder, so on and so forth. You look at you look through the Old Testament and you see some really grievous sins that would disqualify men, according to most in the Christian church today, from pastoral ministry. Why is this? There seems to be a heightened standard expected in the new covenant than we see happening in the old why is this again if the if their experience of the holy spirit was exactly the same as ours why the discrepancy it seems to me that we are privileged to have the holy spirit not just in greater measure than in the old testament which the Reformed would agree with. But we stand in a different relation to the Holy Spirit than believers of old. And that He is no longer external to us, operating upon us, but within us, helping us from the inside. If I'm correct about this, then we see just more clearly what a blessing it is to have the Holy Spirit in this post-Pentecost era. However, even if I'm mistaken and the Reformed majority are right, nevertheless, of course, it remains a blessing that the Holy Spirit does indwell us in the New Covenant. And that's not really up for uh, dispute among any serious Christian. 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a blessing for you. This is one thing we see in this passage. You'll recall from John 4, 13 and 14, that Jesus said to the Samaritan woman by the well, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We know that Jesus was using metaphorical language. He wasn't about to draw H2O from that particular well to give to that woman or from any other well. But he really was offering to that woman something that parallels water. Something that satisfies as water quenches thirst. Something that gives and sustains life as water does. Spiritual life as opposed to temporal life, but in a similar way, the water he was going to give was going to give life. And the key to understanding Jesus' metaphor in John chapter 4 is the phrase, a spring of water, in verse 14. Jesus wasn't going to give to that woman only a one-time gift, but he was going to give her something that was continuously going to give her more. He was, going, he was not going to give her something limited like a cup or a water bottle or a bucket of water even, but something unlimited like a spring of water. Not something inanimate like H2O, but something living. And that living water is not a what, but a who. Listen to Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Listen. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. In this passage, God himself is the fountain or the spring of living waters. And here we are, later in John's Gospel, in chapter 7 now. And the Holy Spirit is explicitly called a river of living water. Or rivers of living water. In John 4, Jesus was drawing on that same imagery and offering God to this woman, a fountain of living water, springs of living water. God to be in her. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God, who is the fountain of living waters, the Holy Spirit, who is springs of living waters, would come and dwell within that woman if only she would have dealings with Jesus. And here is Jesus again, three chapters later in John 7, drawing on the same imagery and offering to anyone who thirsts the same thing. God is a fountain of living water. The Holy Spirit is springs of living water. And He will come and dwell within you. He will be yours. If you are thirsty, come and I will give you not just a bottle of water, but a spring of water. Not just a bottle, which was bottled at such and such a spring in such and such a place, but I will give you a deed to the land on which that spring sits. I will give you the spring, not just the bottle. This is the blessing you may have, thirsty soul. 
If anyone thirsts, let him have dealings with Jesus. And Jesus will dispense to that person, God himself. As Jeremiah said, a fountain of living water. As Jesus says here, springs of living water. To be in that person. To quench their thirst. To satisfy them. To nourish them. To give them life. When you begin to see your sin. And the hopelessness that ensues from it. When you begin to see and perceive the bleakness of a future without God. When the things of this world lose their luster and shine and you realize they are the fleeting pleasures of Egypt and they will not last. When you begin to run out of other water, when you start to feel aches and pains in your joints and when gravity starts to catch up with you and when fatigue starts to catch up with you and as Ecclesiastes says, the days come in which the grasshopper drags himself along and your life feels like that. When you begin to thirst for a right relationship with God, for the forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation to Him, for a love which lasts and crosses the threshold beyond the grave and lasts past this life. When you want a satisfaction that is not fleeting and temporary, pleasure that is not the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. When you begin to get thirsty... Go and have dealings with Jesus. And Jesus will give you the fullness of God by means of His Holy Spirit coming to indwell you. Rivers of living water. A fountain of living water. Not just a water bottle, but the spring. As Jesus says later in John's Gospel, both He and His Father, by means of His Spirit, the whole triune God, will come and make their home with you. And this is an immense blessing. Have your father and mother forsaken you? The Lord will take you in. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Lo, I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a great blessing for you. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In your heart. In your heart. Not to your heart, but out of your heart. Not something external affecting you, but something internal to you. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The indwelling of God's Spirit is a great blessing to you.
And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is intended to be a blessing for the unbelievers in your life also. As Leon Morris says, Well, it is true that the living water has its ultimate source in Christ. Yet, the believer is mediately a source to others. The root word being mediate or mediator. Let me read that again. Well, it is true that the living water has its ultimate source in Christ. The rivers of living water is God Himself. The Holy Spirit. Yet the believer is immediately a source to others. Look at verse 38. It is out of the believer's heart that living water will flow. And this, Morris adds, stresses the outgoing nature of the Spirit-filled life. Rick Phillips, citing Donald Gray Barnhouse, says that when you are filled with God's Spirit... People will instinctively come to you for help. In your school, in your office, in your hospital, you should so live Christ that others will approach you in their times of trouble and that you can flow Christ to them. Is this the influence that you have in the world? If not, then drink from Christ. And ask Him to make you a spring of His blessing to others. This raises an interesting question. This section of Scripture. Where where do the Scriptures say that rivers of living water will flow out of the hearts of God's people? What passage is coming to your mind? There is no explicit text. There's not there's no apocryphal text. There's no there's no text in the rabbinical literature. The commentators can't find any source that Jesus might be citing for this phrase. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Instead of being rooted in an explicit text, it's the general tenor of the Old Testament. To expect that when God brings His redemptive purposes to pass, when the Messiah comes, and the Spirit is poured out on a dry, thirsty land, that this will result in blessings for the nations. It's the general tenor of the whole Old Testament. It seems that what Jesus is doing here is systematic theology. Like we might say, like we might say, as the scripture teaches, there is one God who exists in three persons, co-equal in power and glory. You wouldn't find any explicit verse. And yet it's summative of biblical teaching. It seems that Jesus is doing a similar thing here. And he's, he's synthesizing the teaching of the Old Testament. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
in the Old Testament, we are led to expect that God's grace is going to move through God's people to the nations. The Old Testament never, ever has the biological offspring of Abraham exclusively in view. The unfolding of God's redemptive purposes are narrowed in the early stages to the biological family of Abraham. But from there, there is an expansion. In fact, you see even the seeds of the expansion in God's declaration to Abraham that in your seed, all the nations of the earth or all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you back up and go all the way back to Eden, you can see that the narrowing of God's focus to deal with Abraham and his biological offspring could not have been ultimate. Because remember way back in Genesis chapter 3, it was promised that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Which would not affect obviously only one family on the earth, but that would have far-reaching consequences if the serpent's head was crushed. You see, in the unfolding revelation of God's redemptive purposes, not only in the New Testament, but in the Old, that there is going to be an expansion of God's gracious dealings. You read prophecies of Egypt and Edom and Assyria coming to have a share in the blessings of the God of Israel. Think of Zephaniah chapter 3 where God says, I will change the speech of the nations to a pure speech. Many other examples. Just a couple more. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. The Lord says to the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And one more, which I often mention in prayer, Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is it new? Is it new when we read in Acts chapter 1? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Is something utterly different happening from what the Old Testament has led us to expect? No. It's continuity on that theme. Continuity on that point. That the Messiah has come. The Spirit is about to be poured out. And when the Spirit is given, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I believe it is this reality which is captured in Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel is seeing a vision. He describes this section of it thus. Then he brought me to the back door, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. 
toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gates that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Okay, let's just pause here. Jesus is, in a very real sense, the true temple. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Right? Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. But we, like living stones, are being built together to be a dwelling place for God. First Timothy calls us the household of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? There is a sense in which Jesus is the true temple, but there is also a sense in which we are the temple of God, where God dwells among us, within us. I believe that it's in that latter sense that we are to understand this vision in Ezekiel. You remember that the Lord prophesies to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit will a dwelling place for his presence be built. I believe that what we're seeing is an eschatological or, or end times temple of God, but not a physical, literal one, but us, the church. Going eastward, Ezekiel 47, verse 3. Right. So what's happened so far? There's a little trickle coming out of the temple, right? Ezekiel 47 and verse 3. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Is that a trickle? Okay, so what's happening? It's getting deeper. If you call your plumber and you say there's a trickle, and he shows up and it's ankle deep water streaming through your house, you've you've uh, you've misspoken. You've understated the case. Again, he measured a thousand. Verse four, and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water. It was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. So what you see here is a river flowing from the temple outward, implicitly away from the temple toward the nations and is getting stronger as it goes. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a blessing of the New Covenant, whether distinctly of the New Covenant or not. We'll leave it to the pros to debate further. But it is certainly a blessing of the New Covenant. To be in the New Covenant is to have the Spirit of Christ. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Romans 8. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a blessing for you. That you have a spring of water in you to address your thirst. If you are thirsty, go have dealings with Jesus. Jesus will put a spring of water in you for your sake to quench your thirst. Believe that Jesus came and lived a life of perfect righteousness on behalf of unrighteous sinners. Offering up to God what we should have but did not. Believe that He died on the cross 
bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins in our place so that we don't have to bear that punishment. Believe that He rose, that He ascended, and that He remains at the Father's right hand, putting all of His enemies under His feet until He comes to personally destroy the last enemy, which is death. Believe that, and not only will you have your sins forgiven and be reconciled to God, but streams of living water will be put within you. God, the fountain of living water, will come to make His home with you. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is also intended to be a blessing for the nations. In order that you might, as Leon Morris said, immediately be a source to others. It's not as if you are the spring of living water. God is the spring of living water. So you don't minister yourself to others. But as you go about your daily life, God, who is a fountain of living water, is within you. God, who is springs of living waters, rivers of living waters, is within you. Minister to others the things of that God by His help, which is ever-present. Testify that there is a river which makes glad the city of God. And it flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb, as Revelation 22 and verse 1 tells us. And But that river in the gospel of Jesus Christ has been placed within us. A profound blessing, not only for us, but for the world. So recognize your privilege, Christian, of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit by virtue of your connection to Christ and your share in all of Christ's covenant blessings. Enjoy the blessing yourself. Commune with God. What fool would die of thirst beside a freshwater spring? And yet so often, isn't this the way we go through our Christian life? Oh, I'm so thirsty, I'm so thirsty. You have rivers of living water within you. Have dealings with God on a day-to-day basis. Commune with God in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. A benediction that I often say at the end of the service. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We may not only have fellowship with one another in the Holy Spirit, but we may have fellowship with God in the Holy Spirit. Enjoy that. Don't die of thirst beside a freshwater spring, so to speak. And then be a blessing to others by bringing water to them. Or more accurately, by inviting them to do as you have done and to come and to drink of Christ Jesus. Urge people to stop drinking from broken cisterns as Jeremiah indicted the people of old. Call out their idolatries. Call out their sins. Call out the folly of trying to quench your thirst outside of Christ Jesus. And instead, even quote this passage to them, this invitation of Christ Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, 
Let him come to Jesus and drink. And assure them of that gospel promise that having come and drunk of Christ, you too will have a river of living water within you. The Father and the Son, by the Holy Spirit, will come and make their home with that person as well.